0: Good morning. Today's good morning. Today's text will be on Revelations twenty, chapter twenty. I'll be reading the entire chapter, so please take out your Bibles or listen along as I read Revelations twenty. This is God's word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they were tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated.
1: Now Let's pray together as we come to this passage. Our God and our Father, we come with sober hearts and sober minds, to this great passage and chapter of Scripture in Your holy and living active Word. Father, we recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed, given to us, Father, as revelation directly from You and for our profit and for our good. And so would You use Your Word this morning in order to encourage us and in order to strengthen us and in order to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Give us understanding, give us wisdom, and help us, Father, not to just be hearers of the word, but to become more and more doers who are transformed in the way that we live our lives as you work to renew our minds and focus them on truth and on your glory and on your eternal kingdom. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Even today we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to spend a few more weeks with you all here in the ending chapters of the book of Revelation before we head back into the Minor Prophets where we'll be taking a look at the book of Obadiah. If you remember back, we saw several weeks ago in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, that our God is a victorious God. He's victorious over Satan and all of the world powers of wickedness and deception that we see all around us and that are allied with Satan in this world. They seem fearsome and they seem to be in control sometimes, but God would assure us that He is the conquering King. We saw in chapter 19... That there is coming a day when Jesus Christ, the one who defeated death itself on the cross and by his resurrection, he will return one day. Both as a great conquering king and as a great loving bridegroom in order to gather his people unto himself at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And also to destroy all of his enemies in the winepress of his wrath. And so our great and our powerful and our holy and our merciful God reveals to us as we're living our lives in this world where we're surrounded by things that fill us with sorrow and that cause suffering and hardship for us, where we're surrounded by wickedness and evil and rebellion, our God would have us know that over it all He reigns. He rules in sovereign majesty and victory. And that in all of these things that are so often difficult for us He is working with sovereign purpose to bring judgment against all sin and to redeem and to sanctify His own people. This is one of the greatest truths that God reveals to us in His Word. As we live in this world and we experience all of the what Jesus calls the birth pains of suffering and tribulation that He told us we we should expect in this life. It's the truth that Paul sums up so well in Romans chapter 8 where he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Even and often especially the hard things work together for our good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And in so many ways, that is the truth that the book of Revelation proclaims all throughout It's chapters as Jesus addresses His church. He sits on His throne, reigning from heaven, even as wickedness and evil rages all throughout the earth, and He is in control over it all, and ultimately He is using it all in the accomplishment of His divine purposes. He's working to sanctify His own people through the fiery trials that we Face and encounter and endure in this sin cursed world. And he's also working to bring judgment in an escalating, increasing fashion against all who the book of Revelation calls the earth dwellers, the ones who worship the creation instead of the creator, and against all of God's enemies. So as we come today to Revelation chapter 20, We're going to see that same dynamic at play in some ultimate ways as God uses the wicked purposes of His enemies against them in order to accomplish His purposes and in order to do good for His people. So Revelation 20, probably a familiar chapter to all of you, follows right on the heels, of course, of Revelation 19, which we looked at two weeks ago together, And at the end of Revelation 19, what happens? It's the final battle between the beast and all of his followers and God and all of his followers. The beast at the end of chapter 19 gathers together all of the kings of the earth who rage against God and who persecute the people of God. And these wicked kings of the earth come together with all of their people, all of the earth dwellers, the ungodly, unbelievers from the earth, from every walk of life, it says, both great and small, slave and free. All men, Revelation 19 verse 18 says, All unbelieving human beings together make one final stand against the Lord God and His anointed Jesus Christ, and when they do that, they fail spectacularly. They are all struck down by the sword of the sovereign Lord Jesus, and it says in gruesome detail that the flesh of all men becomes a feast for the birds of prey. So the end of Revelation chapter 19 is the end of human history in this world. There's no one left standing at the end of Revelation chapter 19, right? All of the people of God at the beginning of the chapter have been taken out of the world at the second coming of Jesus and ushered into the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we focused on two weeks ago. And that only leaves ungodly unbelievers on the earth. And it says all of them, every last one of them is cut down by the sovereign judgment of Jesus so that by the end of chapter 19 there are literally no humans left on the planet. Because the bride of Christ, all the redeemed are already there at the wedding feast and all of the unregenerate evildoers are defeated and destroyed and no one is left. And that sort of begs a big important question when we get to chapter 20, right? Because in chapter 20, the first thing we encounter is this period of a thousand years where Satan is bound for a reason, and it's given to us. He's bound so that, verse 3 says, he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years are ended, and after that he must be released for a little while. And then down in verse 7, it says that when the thousand years are ended, Satan is released. And he does deceive the nations, and he gathers people from all the nations together for battle against God, and it says their number in verse 8 is like the sand of the seashore. There's tons and tons of people coming to make war against God, and the question is, where would they come from? If all the believers in Jesus were already removed at the second coming of Jesus up in chapter 19 and then all the enemies of Jesus to a man were destroyed so that the flesh of all men became a feast for the birds at the end of chapter 19 leaving no one left on the earth then where do all these people in chapter 20 come from? Where do all the nations of people as many as grains of sand on the seashore where do they all come from? And If everyone is gone by the end of chapter 19, what's the point of binding Satan so that he can't deceive the nations in chapter 20? If there's no one left to protect from being deceived, then what's the point of providing that protection? What's the deal? The deal is simple. The deal is that the events of chapter 20 Happen before the events of chapter 9 in terms of time, in terms of chronology, which is something that happens a lot in the book of Revelation, and we actually see it in plenty of other places in Scripture also. It's not always chronologically sequential. For example, even in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 10, it says that there were all kinds of different languages all around the world, all across the earth. Many different languages. Then you get to chapter 11 after chapter 10 and it says that the whole earth had one language and everyone spoke the same words. What's the deal? The deal is in chapter 10 the author was giving a a broad chronicling of all of the nations in the world. And then in chapter 11, he takes a step back in time in order to focus on a particular event that had taken place before, earlier in time at the Tower of Babel. And the book of Revelation does that same kind of thing all the time. It shifts the focus in time back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It wants us to look at the same events in history from different angles and learn and glean different truths and realities about who God is and who Satan is and how the earth is and what sin is and what the purposes of God are and how it's all going to wash out. And so the perspective shifts, kind of like when you're watching a, a football game and there's a really great play and then all of a sudden you're... You're, you're going back in time to see that play again. And then they're going to show it to you from about 10 different camera angles, right? Because there's cameras all around the stadium. There might even be a drone flying overhead. And you're going to see that same event in time over and over and over again. And sometimes when I'm watching a football game, that'll happen. We'll see this great play, and then they show the instant replay, and my wife goes, Hey, the same thing just happened again. And, no, 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 it's a replay. It's a replay. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson says that the book of Revelation works like that and that it's not so much like walking down a long straight path chronologically. It's more like climbing up a spiral staircase. So that as you go around and around, looking again and again at the same periods of history and the same events, you get higher and higher and your perspective gets greater and greater and you're able to see more and more and understand more and more. That's how the book of Revelation works. And in chapter 20, that's what's going on. That's what we're doing. We're circling back around to take another look at a particular portion of the history of our world from a different angle, a different camera perspective. So the key to understanding Revelation chapter 20 is to understand when exactly this period of time that's called a thousand year period, when does this period of time take place? And the key to understanding when the thousand years takes place is the key in the hand of the angel in verse 1 right there. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. It's not the first time this key appears in the book of Revelation. And so we can understand exactly what it is by how it's used earlier in the book. Way back in chapter 1, the same key is shown And it's shown that as a a result of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, 2,000 years ago in our time frame, that because of the resurrection of the dead, that Jesus holds the key of death and Hades, which is an image that signifies His sovereign authority over death, because He conquered it, and over Hades, over, over who goes where after death. And he gives his church comfort and confidence, knowing that when it comes to our lives and our eternal lives, Satan isn't sovereign. Jesus is. And then that truth is amplified in chapter six of Revelation. When the seals on that scroll start to get opened and then the, the fourth seal is opened and a pale horse rides forth, which is a demonic, satanic agent who wants to bring death on the earth, but he's under the sovereign control of God, ultimately accomplishing God's perfect purposes, and then that same divine authority that's being pictured is, is pictured here with the key that this angel holds in his hand. It's a a sign of the sovereign authority that God holds and wields over death and over eternity. It's called the key of David in Revelation chapter 3. It signifies Jesus' authority as the king to protect his church and his people while Satan tries to deceive and destroy. In chapter 9, it's called the key to the bottomless pit signifying Jesus's authority over the demonic realm as he allows Satan and authorizes Satan to to do certain things in this world but but ultimately those things end up accomplishing God's good purposes and so there are common themes threaded all throughout the book of revelation which which are represented by this key. It's a symbol of Jesus' sovereign authority as the God who He is, specifically over Satan and the demons and over death and hell. Authority to protect His people from Satan's attempts to drag them down into everlasting death and destruction. And, And God is wielding that authority to protect us now during this age ever since Jesus took that key and gained that authority by His own resurrection from the dead. And so God is working together for the ultimate good of His people, even through the terrible afflictions and hardships and sorrows and sufferings in this world, to guarantee that if we belong to Him, then our destiny is with Him forever. And here in chapter 20, God is showing us the same thing, the same truth, just from a slightly different angle. We're seeing God's sovereign authority over Satan, over death, signified by this key to the bottomless pit as God exercises that authority now on behalf of his church, on behalf of his people now in this age between the resurrection of Jesus and his second coming and the The subtle distinction here, in contrast to the other passages where the key is shown and God's authority over Satan is proclaimed, is that in those passages, the emphasis is on God sovereignly authorizing and allowing Satan to do the things that Satan does. Only when Satan does them, he ends up accomplishing God's purposes. But here... It's not God allowing Satan to do something with his sovereign authority. It's God using his sovereign authority to prevent Satan from doing something. Very specifically. And verse 3 tells us what, very specifically, God sovereignly prevents Satan from doing. Satan is prevented from deceiving the nations, it says. And the only way to understand what that means is to look down in this same chapter at verse 7, which tells us what Satan is able to do by deceiving the nations when he's released from his bondage. When he's released and and succeeds in being able to deceive the nations, what happens? They all gather together for battle against God in an all-out attempt to dethrone God and to destroy the church. They come together to take this one last, final, rebellious, defiant stand against God and against His kingdom and against His people, which is exactly the same thing that was depicted back in chapter 19 at the end of the chapter. So that's what God is showing us in chapter 20. He's showing us how right now, presently, Satan is bound by the sovereign restraints of God's authority so that he's prevented from being able to deceive all the nations into gathering together against God in a final all-out battle and war against His throne and against His people. And we're shown that there is coming a time shortly before Jesus returns when Satan will will be loosed from his bonds. And allowed to do this, allowed to deceive the nations and gather them together to make war against God and His church. And we already know the end of that story from chapter 19. When that happens, they will fail and Satan will lose and he will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. And then we're also shown at the end of chapter 20 here, another picture of the final judgment of all people that will take place before the throne of God. And we're given some detail about it. So in Revelation 20, this is what we see. We see that before the last battle and the second coming of Jesus, God sovereignly restrains Satan. He sovereignly protects his people. Then he sovereignly unleashes Satan. And then he sovereignly destroys Satan. And finally, God sovereignly judges the whole world. See who's in focus here? See what the point is here? It's not Satan. In all of His power, it's God. In all of His sovereign authority. and all of His purposes so as to encourage and strengthen His church. So if we keep God, if we keep His sovereign rule and authority, if we keep His steadfast love and faithfulness for His people in our focus, at the center, that's when we'll understand and be blessed by Revelation chapter 20. Now, Whenever we talk about this, and I teach people that 1,000 years of Revelation 20, this, the, the Latin word is millennium, when I, when I teach that the millennium is a present period of time and not a future period of time, there are, that, that it's a period of time that comes before the last battle and before the second coming of Jesus, there are always two really good questions, two big questions that come up. And the first one is this, if this this thousand year period is a present period of time that we're in the middle of now, how can that be since it's already been more than a thousand years since Jesus' resurrection and ascension, right? And he hasn't returned yet. In fact, so far it's been around 2,000 years, hasn't it? And what we have to realize is how often, how much, how actually predominantly The book of Revelation, borrowing from the motif of all of the Old Testament prophets, how often this kind of scripture uses pictures and numbers in a symbolic way. In chapter 5, Jesus is pictured as a lamb. Do you think that's what he literally looks like physically? Who's also a lion? Hard to paint a picture of who has seven horns on his head and seven eyes. But see, it's not a picture of his physical appearance, right? That's not what Jesus bodily looks like. What he bodily looks like is what he looked like when he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. He was recognized by all of his disciples as a regular looking human being with two eyes and no horns actually on his head. And then he ascended and they were told he's going to return in the same exact way that he came and you'll recognize him then too. He didn't metamorphosize physically. These pictures are used in order to signify something about his character, not his appearance physically. In the book of Revelation, Satan is pictured as a big red dragon. And again, that's not an actual physical description. Here there's an angel shown holding a key and he has a chain with which to bind Satan, but probably it's not an actual physical metal chain that he wraps around Satan somehow and ties him up with. It's a, it's a, it's a symbol of his authority over Satan, isn't it? Back in Revelation chapter 1, and again we saw it in chapter 19, there's, there's a picture of Jesus and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. Well, again, that's not an actual picture of some actual metal object that he has lodged between his teeth, and they're just kind of swinging around. That's not—it's not supposed to be a visible representation of his physical appearance. It's supposed to give us an image of the power and the authority of his word. Let's think for a second about this and how exactly. God uses these kinds of images in the book of Revelation and he does it all throughout every single chapter of Revelation. Think about the images in terms of layers or in terms of uh, levels of meaning. When God speaks this way at the top, there's the level of what John actually sees in the visions that God gives to him. He sees dragons and beasts and frogs, and locusts, and swords, and keys, and lampstands, and eyes, and horns, all kinds of things in these visions that God gives Him. Call that the visionary level, the images He sees in visionary form. Then beneath the visionary level, there's the level of what those images refer to, right? What they connote beyond actual physical things or objects or events, and that's this symbolic level. They They signify something. And in order to understand the point of the vision, you've got to know what the images on the visionary level refer to and signify on the symbolic level. The sword refers to Jesus' word. The lampstands signify churches. The dragon symbolizes Satan. Horns symbolize strength and power and authority like the horns on a bull or a ram. The key signifies sovereign authority on and on and on. And then there's another level. Beneath the visionary level, there's this third level of of sort of the historical identification of various things and events in the the book of Revelation. The historical level. All the way back in chapters 2 and 3, right? The churches that Jesus wrote to, they were actual congregations of Christians scattered throughout the west coast of Asia Minor, Turkey, right? And they're pictured as seven lampstands. So at the visionary level, John sees seven lampstands. And then on the bottom level, at the historical level, we know that those lampstands referred to seven actual churches in Asia Minor, right? But if you forget to account for the middle level, the symbolic level, and if you forget that the lampstands symbolize and signify churches in a particular way, then what you're left saying is that the churches at the historical level are lampstands, right? Physical metal things, I guess, that were stuck in seven places throughout age. That's not what it means. No one would do that, right? That'd just be silly to forget the symbolic level, wouldn't it? And insist that the seven churches that Jesus wrote letters to were just big metal lampstands somewhere out there. Or that the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth was an actual metal object between his teeth. But see, so we don't, we know better than that. But see, oftentimes this is exactly what happens when we get here to Revelation 20 and and try to understand the first eight verses. We forget to account for the visionary and the symbolic levels. And we collapse everything down to that historic level and insist that this is a literally 1,000. Calendar year, historical year, period, where Satan is bound. But you got to remember, and we have to remember, how numbers are so often used in symbolic ways throughout the book of Revelation, right? Like the tons of times that the number of seven is used. Jesus has seven eyes. Well, what, is the, what does the number seven signify in Scripture? Well, God created the heavens and the earth in seven days finished the work in seven days. So ever since then, the number seven has this significance of completion, finished work. So what does it mean that Jesus has seven eyes? It doesn't mean he's got seven literal eyes. It means that his vision, his, what he sees is complete. There's nothing he misses. He has seven horns on his head like the horns of an animal that it does battle with. It means that his power is, is total and Complete. Number 10 also used all throughout the book of Revelation to indicate something big, something great, something vast. And and then multiples of the number 10 indicate magnitudes of greatness. And the number 1,000 is a multiple of the number 10. it signifies not a precise number of years to be counted, but a great long period of time. And I would submit to you that very often... We ourselves, here in 21st century America, we, we talk this way too. We, we use numbers like a thousand this way too. Not always to indicate precision, but in a rhetorical figure of speech, idiomatic kind of way, right? When mom and dad say, let's watch this movie tonight, and the kids go, oh, we've seen it a thousand times, let's not watch it again. Well, we've probably seen it a dozen times, if we were counting literally. But when you want to say a lot, sometimes you you speak like this, right? God does this in Psalm 50 and verse 10, where he says, Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills belong to me. And of course, that doesn't mean that there are only a thousand hills with cows on them in the world. There's probably actually more. And it certainly doesn't mean that if there are more than a thousand hills with cows on them, then then God only owns the ones on the first thousand hills and, and the ones after that he doesn't own, right? It doesn't mean that. It's silly. We understand he's speaking colloquially and, and idiomatically, euphemistically. We understand that God's word does this and and we do this. We speak that way often. It's a, it's a legitimate use of language, to use euphemism, and I think that's exactly how we need to understand God's Word here. This thousand-year period, this millennium of Revelation 20, think about it, can't happen after the last battle and the second coming of Jesus because there's no one left for Satan to deceive then. This is a period of time that started because of this key. It started at the resurrection of Jesus who took the keys of death in Hades and and who exercises sovereign authority over Satan. And it's a period that will end with Satan being loosed for a while and with this final battle that he incites, which will end with the destruction of all wickedness in the world and Satan himself in the lake of fire in the final judgment when Jesus returns. This is a a period of time that's a long period of time that we're living in the middle of right now, since the resurrection of Jesus and as we wait for his second coming. That brings up the other big question, which is also a great question, which is this, well chapter 20 says that Satan is bound during this thousand year period. How can that be true if we're living in the middle of that period because It doesn't seem like he's bound, does it? seems like he's kind of wreaking havoc all over the place, right? And the answer is to understand exactly what it means by his binding, which is defined for us specifically here. He is bound right now in exactly the way that this chapter says he is and in exactly the way that other passages of Scripture in the New Testament says he is. For instance, in the Gospels, which record the events of Jesus' life 2,000 years ago while He walked on this earth and performed miracles and healed people, right? In Matthew chapter 12 and in Mark chapter 3, Jesus said that as He was doing that, as He was physically and literally here and performing miracles, healing people, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he said that while he was doing that then, he was binding Satan. He said, remember, that he had come to plunder Satan's house, the strong man's house, this world that Satan has held sway over for so long and kept people in bondage to sin and blindness and spiritual death. Jesus has come to plunder human souls. Out of this world from Satan's grasp. To take captive souls and set them free through saving them by grace and through faith in him. And he said that in order to do that, in order to plunder Satan's house, he first had to bind the strong man. He literally says that. That's, he uses this same word that Revelation 20 uses here. So we know that he's been binding Satan 2,000 years ago and ever since. See? That's what he was doing through his ministry, through the gospel, through his death, through his resurrection. He's been binding Satan. He's been keeping Satan from preventing people from every tribe and tongue and nation from hearing the gospel and from believing and from being saved. How much of that, how much of of people from all over the world hearing the gospel and being saved, how much of that was going on in the world before Jesus came? How much faith in God was there across the face of the earth before Jesus came? Very, very little. The light of the truth that God was revealing was shrouded in darkness and unbelief as Satan spread all of that darkness and unbelief all around this world. And even in the little nation of Israel, where God was revealing his truth through the prophets, (laughs) Darkness abounded, right? The light was flickering because the people were unfaithful and idolatrous. That's all there was. A little flickering light in the midst of the remnant of Israel until Jesus came. Until the light of life entered the darkness of this world and the Son of God came and bound the strong man and gave up his life for the lost and rose on the third day. Then what happened? Well, man, then the book of Acts happened, right? And... Boom! 3,000 people in one day were saved in in the city of Jerusalem alone. And then the disciples started going to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. and, And the light of the gospel started spreading like wildfire. Even in spite of massive persecution and martyrdom, the church grew, the church thrived. It still does today because Satan's bound. And he's incapable of stopping it. He'd love to. He's thrashing around and trying to. But he's he's prohibited from stopping the spread of the gospel and the growth of God's kingdom in this world. He's incapable of preventing people from being drawn from every people and nation. He's incapable of consigning all image-bearing people to everlasting death. Because he's bound. Hebrews 2.14 puts it this way. It says, Jesus Christ partook of flesh and blood. He became a human being so that through His own death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So, Satan himself hasn't been destroyed yet, but by Jesus' death, Satan's power over death has been destroyed and bound by Jesus as he's kept from being able to keep people from being raised to newness of life through the power of the Gospel. Because, Colossians 2.15, God has disarmed already, past tense, the satanic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. That's That's what Jesus has already done. He's disarmed them. He's put them to shame. He's triumphed over them. Satan is bound And unable to prevent the gospel from spreading like wildfire to the ends of the earth. And and he's unable to rally the nations together in such violent unbelief and rebellion against God that they gather together on this final time to try to destroy the church completely in ultimate defiance against God. Now that's what's coming when Satan is, is let loose for a short time. And that's what's shown and described here in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 20. But until then, even though Satan is thrashing against his chains and making a lot of noise and bound by the sovereign power of Jesus Christ, he's still a roaring lion, right? Like Peter says, he still prowls around seeking whom to devour, but he's a lion on a leash, held in the sovereign hand of God. So the binding of Satan here isn't his complete and total destruction or utter and absolute incapacitation. It's not the complete elimination of all of the influence that Satan has in this world. Not yet. That's coming, but not yet. The binding of Satan is the victorious effect of the death and resurrection of Jesus And the effect that that has on Satan's ability to keep the whole world shrouded in unbelief and prevent the spread of the gospel and deceive the nations into coming for all out war against God. To to attempt to destroy the kingdom of God and to, to attempt to dethrone God once and for all. Satan's not allowed to do those things yet. But he can still do other things that God's word says that he does, right? He can still tempt people with evil. He can still spread false teaching, cleverly disguise lies as the angel of light that he poses as. He can blind the minds of unbelievers, the Bible says. He can promote all types of wickedness and godlessness in this world. He can seek to devour people like a roaring lion. He can incite violence and physical death in this world and and persecution against Jesus' church. But none of that ends up destroying Jesus' church because God won't let that happen because Satan is bound. None of it can snuff out the light of the gospel. None of it can destroy the eternal life of any single one of God's chosen people because God won't let it happen. In his awesome sovereign glory, he's actually using Satan's lies and deceptance and, and and wickedness against him So that ultimately Satan isn't working out Satan's purposes. He's he's not working ultimately against God's purposes. He's actually being used to accomplish God's purposes. Just like what happened at the cross where Jesus ultimately defeated him. Right? When the godless, wicked men, full of satanic hatred towards the Son of God, nailed Jesus on a cross, they ended up fulfilling the eternally predetermined plan and purpose of God, to redeem his people by the blood shed by Jesus on that cross. So when Satan, when Satan rages against his chains and yanks on his leash and roars his blasphemous voice, God's purposes aren't threatened, God's purposes aren't thwarted. They are, in fact, being sovereignly worked out. His church isn't destroyed; it's actually being built. When 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 Satan succeeds in taking the physical life of the people of God through martyrdom and persecution, the church grows. Because here's the words of the church father Tertullian: He says, "The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church." God's people aren't destroyed by Satan, Satan's rage; we're we're being sanctified. In fact, by the fiery trials which test us. The absolute worst thing that Satan can do to you while he's bound and leashed by the sovereign Lord Jesus is to kill you physically, to end your earthly life. And then what? Everlasting glory. Because he cannot touch your soul. He cannot touch your eternal life. In Jesus Christ, He can thrash and He can roar and He can rage all He wants, but not one of God's people will be lost. Not one of His chosen children will be ever snatched out of His sovereign hand. In fact, look at verses 4 through 6 here. These verses shift the focus from earth up to heaven in order to show what's going on in heaven during this, this long period of time that we're living in right now while Satan is bound and prevented from thwarting the gospel or destroying the church or deceiving the nations into taking that last final stand against God. In heaven, verses 4 through 6 show, all of the people who have already died in Christ, Mary Beth's one of them now and especially those who have been persecuted and martyred, they're all up there right now reigning with Christ. John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, who had not received its mark, on their foreheads or their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for this thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This, this, this reigning with Christ that he's speaking of, this is what's called the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection, because over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. I mean, those verses show a resurrection that's already happened, and it's referring to the souls of the saints of God who have died physically in this world. Some of them have been martyred and beheaded, but but whether they've been martyred or not, they're the people who died in this world having lived their lives in faithfulness to Jesus, And so their souls, when their bodies died, were raised into heaven in order to reign with Christ for this whole thousand-year period until He returns. This isn't the resurrection of their bodies yet because it says specifically their souls there in verse 4. And the Bible makes it very clear in lots of places that, that there's only one physical bodily resurrection of the dead that will happen, not two. Jesus says that in John 5. Paul says it in 2 Thessalonians 1. Daniel says it. Isaiah says it. At the last hour, all of the dead will be bodily raised together. Here, in Revelation 20, there's a a prior resurrection, which is this raising of the souls of the saints into heaven. And then the second resurrection, which is the physical resurrection, will come later at the end when Jesus returns. And when that happens, God's Word says, there will also be a second death. Not the the first death, which is the physical death of our bodies in this world. The second death that that is being spoken of here is, is eternal and final death, which unbelievers will be subject to When they come under the wrath of God and the judgment of God, not in heaven, but in hell. In God's word, death doesn't just mean um, the cessation of life. It has to do with the idea of separation. In the first death, when you die physically in this world, right? For a Christian to be absent from the body... For the soul to be separated from the body means that the soul is present and at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5. Well, in the second death, people who are not in Jesus Christ, people who are unbelievers, people who are ungodly will be forever separated from that glorious presence of God before His throne and in the blessing of His glory. And they will spend eternity, body and soul, forever in hell. And verse 6 says what a blessing it is if our, if our souls have been raised with Christ. We'll never know that second death. We'll only ever know the second resurrection when our, when our bodies are raised. And so body and soul we will always be with God in glory. So the point here is that the saints of God who have suffered in this world, who have, who have died the first death, physical death, the separation of soul and body, many of them having been actually martyred. They didn't worship the beast. They didn't take its mark. They, they lived in faithful service to Jesus and they died in faith to Jesus in this world. Their souls are raised up to heaven when they die. And when they get there, they aren't just like enjoying the presence of God and sitting around on clouds and playing harps. They're sitting on thrones They're reigning with Jesus. They're ruling with Jesus, having come into the fullness of their inheritance in His kingdom. They're participating in His kingdom and in His reign as co-heirs with Jesus. Like Paul says in Romans, they're living in heaven in fulfillment of the promise of Paul in 2 Timothy 2 where he says, If we have died with Christ, we will also live with Him. And if we endure through the tribulations of this world, we will also reign with Him. So see, even if, even if Satan manages to see our death in this world physically, we are the opposite of defeated, right? Because to be absent from our bodies is to be raised into the presence of Jesus and to reign with Him Forever. With the king of kings, death is swallowed up in victory, see? Because in, in Jesus Christ, physical death ends up becoming victory as we end up ruling and reigning with him until he returns to take part in that last battle. That's described now. When a thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison And he will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. So, this is the same battle that, that is that is viewed from different camera angles along the spiral staircase of Revelation several other times. It's depicted also in chapter 16. It's depicted in the passage we saw last time in chapter 19. And here we see it again, how the kings and the people of the earth gather themselves together against God to try one last desperate, vain time to challenge God's authority and to overthrow God and overthrow His kingdom. They're pictured here as as camping around the saints of God, surrounding God's people from all sides, ready to to destroy the church, ready to kill any who would stand with Jesus, ready to unleash a wave of persecution unlike the church has ever seen before. And the church has seen a lot. This time it'll be worse. Verse 8 refers to Gog and Magog. That's a... Direct reference back to Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 where God pictures Satan's long historical campaign to go to greater and greater lengths to try to unite all of the world forces of evil together in order to try to crush the peace and the security of God's people and overthrow His kingdom. He pictures it like a military campaign that just pulls out all the stops and literally gathers all the peoples and powers that there are in the world to, to, to make war together against God and try to destroy His dominion and His kingdom and His people. But it won't work. Even though it's literally the collective power and might of all of the forces of evil in this world, with Satan at the helm, after he's been let off his leash and, and let to do his worst, even so it's doomed to fail. Quickly and miserably and utterly and permanently. Even though the number of people who will take a stand against God and His kingdom on the last day will be like the number of grains of sand on the seashore, they will be no match for the King of Kings who will ride in on the white horse with all of heaven's angels and with all of those risen and reigning saints together following behind. Arrayed in white linen and riding on white horses in conquest and in victory. Remember that old hymn, Oh Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints come marching in. Don't you? I do. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. And then all that will be left for this world will be the final judgment. When the whole world, Sin cursed creation, and every man and woman and child who's ever lived will be brought to account before the Holy God. And this is, picture it, it's pictured here in all of its terrifying glory. Verse 11 describes the throne of the Most High and Holy God as, as blazing white, signifying purity, signifying holiness and righteousness and glory. And before the presence of His holiness, it says the the earth and skies fled away. That's the current heavens and the current earth corrupted by sin and cursed and groaning. It's it's them coming to an end, incinerated by the blazing glory and the unrestrained holiness of God, burnt up and dissolved and, and, and disintegrated, as Peter says, right? And then John sees in verse 12, all the dead, great and small, assembled before God's glorious throne. Death and Hades gave up all their dead. It's, this is the bodily resurrection now, physically, of all the people from all of history who have already died, raised bodily and brought to stand before God's throne and exposed to His holiness and glory. And verse 12 says, "...books were opened." Think of how many books that must be. A vast encyclopedic catalog chronicling every deed, every word, every thought, every desire, every attitude, every motive of every person created in the image of God and all judged according to what they had done. So on that day, right, On that day, the full impact of those words, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, will become horribly clear to every person created in the image of God. And it'll become obvious that there are truly none who are righteous. No, not one. That all like sheep had gone astray. And there won't be any excuses on that day, right? There won't be any hope that somehow someone measured up all of this blazing holiness and glory of God. There won't be anyone who will be able to say, well, I lived a pretty good life, Lord. Really? Let's see what the books say. No one will say, well, I did my best and have any hope that it's anywhere near the holiness of God that He demands. The only hope on that day is that along with all our deeds being cataloged in those books, Our names are written in the other book, which is the Lamb's book of life. There's no deeds written in that book, see? There's no list of good things you did which might somehow level the scales, make up, put a dent even in all of the bad things. There's no evidence that you can put forth in your own defense about what you were able to muster up to get anywhere near to the level of the infinite glory and holiness of God. There's no hope of that. The only thing listed in the book of life are names. Names of people who, in spite of all of the charges against us in the other books, have been saved from the eternal wrath of God. Because we didn't put our hope in anything that we could ever possibly do. We put our hope in Jesus who bore the wrath for us, who nailed this massive certificate of debt consisting of charges against us, like Colossians says, nailed it to the cross, canceling it out because He became our substitute. Outside of Him, outside of Jesus, and His blood shed for us on the cross, there is no hope Not anywhere in this world or this universe. Certainly not anywhere in us. But in Him. In Him there is victory. And in Him there is hope. Because in Him there is life. All that this world around us consists of will be gone one day. And if we die before that happens, then reigning with Him in eternity is going to convince us that none of the stuff in this world really mattered in any eternal sense at all anyway. The only thing that matters, the only reason we're still here as the people of God is not to store up treasures in this world. We're not here to build our legacy or, or, or leave something behind for the world that's not going to last anyways. It's all going to disappear. The only reason we're still here is because right now Satan is bound and the gospel can be proclaimed and the light can shatter the darkness and the church can still grow and thrive and the lost can still be saved from this coming day of eternity where otherwise they will suffer God's holy wrath. They're all, they're all, every single last unbeliever on the planet, they'll all stand before the throne of God on that day. And when those books are opened, they'll all have to give an account to Almighty Holy God. They need to hear the gospel, no matter how unpopular it is, no matter how ridiculed you become. They need to hear that they are sinners who are staring down the barrel of the everlasting judgment of the Holy God. And the antithesis that's getting more and more clear in this world proves it. They need to know that there is no hope anywhere outside of Jesus. They need to know that anyone and everyone who calls on the name of Jesus and turns from their sin and repentance and falls on his face in mercy and trusts in his blood and righteousness alone will be saved. That's the end of the chapter. And that's all that matters, right? Eternity is coming. You don't know when Christ is returning. We don't know when What we know is for now, Satan is bound. So what are we doing with our time? What are we doing with our lives? To redeem the time in these evil days that we've been given while Satan is bound and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Let's stop there and pray together and then sing God's praises. Our God and our Father, Would you give us clarity of mind and confidence and hope that through your sovereign control and majesty and authority, you have bound Satan and you have authorized your gospel as the power of God to go unto the nations and bring salvation and everlasting life to all who believe. Father, will you impress upon us the urgency of eternity and what is coming on that day of judgment? And give us boldness and give us courage to stand against the devil's lies and to proclaim the truth and to plead the blood and the righteousness and the mercy and the steadfast love of God in Jesus Christ. Father, build your church. Father, give us courage. Father, give us strength. Help us stand firm. Help us know what matters and what doesn't matter in this world and in our lives. And glorify yourself in us and through us we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Will you take your bulletins now? Turn to page fifteen and let's respond to God having spoken to us through his word by singing to him. O church, arise and put your armor on. Let's sing.